Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, welcome back from your weekends and hello, all those kinds of things. Um, I should tell you that in the final segment of today's show, and I will try not to burn up the clock so that there actually is a final section of today's show. I have a bad reputation. I know that. But we'd like to have some time for your phone calls, particularly about the topic that we're going to discuss here in the first segment of the show, which is, I think it's fair to say, well, let me back up and say a couple of things. One of them is, so last week and the week before, we had uh, the story of the Sinclair-owned um, stations and, and these news anchors and news reporters r- repeating this kind of Nicene creed you know, that had been written for them about their preeminence over fake news and fake news presumably in this Nicene creed seemed to be something that one would encounter at other mainstream or legacy media outlets. Uh, anyway, uh, there was something... Some way in which the violation occasioned by that was more profound than it normally should have been, right? I mean, I think people felt troubled about it in a way that maybe even went outside the contours of the story itself. And I think that has something to do with the intimacy of local news. There's a way in which local news relates to uh, its reader, listener, watcher population, its consumer population, in a really different way. No matter how attached you are to Rachel or Anderson or Sean, you know, um, you're not attached to them the way you are to local news. If local news is functioning the way it's supposed to, if local news is healthy and robust. Uh, But as we've seen in recent years, local news across pretty much the waterfront uh, of media genres has uh, taken some deep dives. Um, So we knew that, but we didn't really know what it meant until this morning. Uh, And this morning I read an absolutely fascinating kind of startling, but then kind of a what-did-you-expect also uh, story, uh, and we're going to talk about it right now. It's in Politico. Uh, the author of it, uh, Matthew Nussbaum, uh, is with us right now, White House reporter for Politico. Uh, he wrote a piece this weekend about basically how uh, President Trump, and more relevantly, candidate Trump, benefited from news deserts. News deserts, we, we can—well, actually, I'll let Matt do that. Uh, so, Matthew Nussbaum, uh, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So uh, when we say news desert, uh, what do we mean? We mean places with very low subscription rates uh, to local news sources. So places uh, where subscription rates to the local paper are extremely low, uh, that would be a news desert similar to to food deserts, places where there aren't quality grocery stores available. Um, And so what you did was... Um, uh, using fairly readily available data, tried to figure out what subscription rates were in lots of different places, track that against electoral performances not only by Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, but in the previous cycle, particularly uh, Mitt Romney's performance in 2012. What did you find? Right. Well, first off the top, let me give some credit to my co-author on this piece, Sean Musgrave, who did a lot of the nitty-gritty with the data. But the results we got show a clear correlation 
uh, between low subscription rates, so between places that, that are those so-called news deserts, and Trump's success uh, in this most recent election, and when compared to Romney in 2012. Um, and some people might say, well, low news subscriptions would uh, correlate with a lot of other factors we saw in the election, whether education or wealth. But what we found were these links were statistically significant, even when you're accounting for other factors like college education, like employment, which seems to imply that there's something important uh, in and of itself with having access to these local media sources. In essence, places where a lot of readers could get independent fact checks that they trusted of candidate Trump, those are places where, unsurprisingly, he did worse. Uh, you know, so this this raises an interesting question, which is, I mean, really, uh, the media fact-checked and challenged everything Donald Trump said all the way through the campaign cycle, and the national media did it. I mean, they fact-checked it in real time. They challenged him uh, about it whenever they could go face-to-face with him. Some of the earliest fights that he had with the media where he started making up horrible names for specific media outlets and even belittling and attacking specific reporters had to do simply with the crowd size at rallies. He'd say 12,000, they'd say 4,000. He'd get into a fight with them about this. And it really kind of is the case that if you look at the performance of the news media through the 2015-2016 cycle, you can find stuff to criticize. Of course you can. And there are ways in which for television news, you know, Trump was a cash register. And so they they put him on a lot more. But in terms of fact checking, in terms of verifying, in in terms of calling attention to lies, the national news media, I think, did a pretty good job. But you're saying that there's something different, something about the relationship between people and in a newspaper that's printed uh, and and written and edited not too far from where they live. Right. There's something about the imprimatur of of your local newspaper. Um, Even if, let's say, the story you're reading in there, at least that covers national news, is provided by the AP uh, or by the Washington Post or or a national publication, having it in your local publication uh, where you read about, you know, your high school sports successes and and your grandmother's obituary ran, and your parents' wedding announcement, uh, there's a real community tie there, uh, a tie that provides a certain level of trust that you're not going to find with necessarily national outlets or some of these more partisan outlets that tend to fill the void for people when they don't have a local newspaper, a local news source to rely on. And, And it's what comes in and fills that void that I think is troubling to a lot of the folks that we spoke with. Right. So what you've got, I mean, first of all, as you uh, chronicled admirably in your piece, I mean, we have a general decline, particularly of legacy print kind of sources. Uh, Certainly when I was first coming into the newspaper business, which is a really long time ago, there are a lot of cities that had one, two, three newspapers, four newspapers. You know, I mean, a a big city might have that many uh, syndicated columns that kind of, you know, could could wind up in in one of those papers. There was kind of a diversity uh, of uh, of viewpoints points that you you might encounter if you were kind of a newspaper reader. That stuff all declined. Most places turned into one newspaper towns or zero newspaper towns. And and in that environment, one of the other things that came stepped into fill the void is social media, right? If you can't if you're not picking up a newspaper, a physical newspaper, or even visiting the site of a physical newspaper to read the news, you can get a lot of news. And a lot of it feels like that kind of folksy, you know, local news uh, from Facebook. People will be shoving stuff at you, right? That's right. Uh, 
people are still getting news, uh, but they're getting it from different sources. And like you say, Facebook and Twitter uh, seem to have really filled that void for a lot of folks. Um, and I think the reliability issues of those platforms are, are front and center right now in a way they haven't been previously. Uh, and the way that they can be exploited for either partisan or, or even uh, international interference uh, means has certainly been something that's been revealed to us recently, and, and they just simply don't have the kind of checks in place that mainstream and, and uh, established newspapers have. Um, of course, the, the decline in local media, uh, as you mentioned, is a, is a long-running trend uh, and certainly doesn't seem to be something that's turning back anytime soon, and it also leads to a kind of nationalization of, of the news narrative um, where national outlets tend to dominate uh, and it's harder to get a sense of you know what's going on in your local community and a local spin on the news when you're relying on say uh, Breitbart uh, or some other national partisan outlet to provide you with news that fits your viewpoint. And it's worth sort of cocking our eyes back uh, uh, at what we were saying before, because it's, uh, I think there's some things that, that need to be emphasized. First of all, it's not just newspapers, although I've written for the Hartford Current now for 40 years or something. Um, but uh, but it's uh, local television. Um, it's one of the reasons right. that people did feel as primally violated by this Sinclair you know, spoken creed is, you know, there's a lot of trust placed in local TV anchors. These are people you don't run into, Rachel Maddow, at the grocery store, but you do run into your local TV anchor, you might, or one of the reporters. These are people who kind of live in your towns. And, and, and the other thing that happened is happened to radio, which is that radio stations went from almost entirely locally hosted um, shows uh, to lineups that included an awful lot. This happened kind of in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, that suddenly there were these um, satellite distributed. Satellite distribution was like the biggest thing. Uh, suddenly you could uh, distribute something like Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity or Michael Savage or something like that uh, sure. to a lot of radio stations, displacing some of the local talent and also creating the notion of a target demo. And the target demo, even if you had some locally hosted content, it probably had to chase the same target demo that the syndicated content you had um, was chasing too. So, I mean, really, you you have a total storm of all this kind of stuff. It's print, it's TV, it's radio. Right. It's easy to see uh, one broad arc uh, leading in the way of the decline of local media across the board. And and to touch on what you said there is is the trust factor of the the local outlet, uh, let's say a television outlet that's providing you with school closing information and the weather and the local stories, there's really an element of, of trust built up there and authenticity that you're not necessarily going to have with a national outlet, uh, which again, you know, in the news now is, is the nationalization uh, of a lot of the news through Sinclair. And, and you're seeing uh, a, now, a national outlet reaching into these local outlets and sort of deciding what they're going to say and what they're not going to say. And I think that's really a good case study uh, of what we're seeing with the media more broadly. Um, you know, when when these national uh, groups or syndicates step in to fill the void created by the collapse, the rapid collapse of local media. So now we have to add one more factor to all this, and that is the rise of a politician who understood 
in the words of Clay Shirky, that everybody is a publisher. I mean, if you're on Facebook, um, if you're posting on Twitter, you're a publisher. You're publishing things. Um, most politicians don't think of themselves that way. Donald Trump understood uh, in a very basic way that he was a publisher. And so if you don't like the narrative that you're uh, getting from, from NBC or The New York Times or Politico, um, you suddenly have another option, particularly when some of these other traditional sources of media are so badly weakened. And that is simply to publish your own news. And that effectively is what Donald Trump has done, right? Right. That's exactly right. And in a lot of ways, he's actually sort of a visionary when it comes to this, uh, though it's up to whether you're a supporter or a critic of his as to whether or not you think this is a good thing. But as, as one Republican uh, campaign consultant pointed out to me, a trick Trump's really pulled off is he's become the source of truth for a lot of his supporters, uh, whether through his Twitter account uh, or through his spoken statements. He's seen as the reliable source for news. So it doesn't matter if these folks they don't trust, uh, whether at The New York Times, like you say, or in the so-called mainstream media, uh, are putting out these fact checks and saying, here – Step by step is why what he's saying about tariffs or crime rates is demonstrably false. These people have found a way to just sort of dismiss that and say Donald Trump is our source for what's true and what's not. If he calls it fake news, then I guess it's fake news. And that's really a potent weapon to have, something that I think would make some politicians uh, uncomfortable. As other people have pointed out, there's a lot of spin in politics, and there always has been. But President Trump sort of takes that to a different level with things that are just outright falsehoods. Uh, and, and he has a willingness to use those and, and to be a source of information for his supporters that we haven't really seen before. Uh, Twitter, obviously, is the most visible of his of the weapons in his arsenal. Um, but sticking on that point, we should remember when a lot of us thought he was going to lose, uh, and a lot of people in his orbit thought he was going to lose, there were serious discussions about him launching Trump TV. Um, we know he's into marketing. We know he's into, into setting the narrative and getting his side out. Uh, and he was going to do that whether he was elected or not. Instead of Trump TV, we now have Trump in the White House. Right. You know, you said that a lot of politicians might have some reluctance anyway to use it that way. I think a lot of politicians still don't get this. Um, I'm trying to decide whether I, I guess I can. I, I, this is sort of an off the record conversation, but the, I, I'm not really divulging any content. But so Jeb Bush came to a class I was teaching a few weeks ago. And at a certain point, I started talking about what you and I are talking about right now. And I just was saying Donald Trump possessed the ability to go, you know, like a panzer division going around the Maginot line to just to go around the press scrum, to just just to go around the entire fact checking apparatus and candidate challenging apparatus. And and I know it took a while before I realized Jeb didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I finally said, oh, no, he just does it by tweeting. And he went, oh, tweeting, you know, like he was talking about some way that's especially disgusting way that animals relieve themselves, uh, which he's not far off. But um, and, and I just I thought, wow, there's traditional politicians who still don't get what happened, which was that Donald Trump became, as you point out, one of the bigger publishers in America. Right. And I had a fascinating conversation, some of which uh, is in the article with Hillary Clinton's campaign press secretary, who was set to be White House press secretary had she won. And we got into that a little bit, which is that uh, and I think he realizes it now more than he did at the time. But he was telling me how he would work hard to 
get stories places about uh, specific policy proposals Hillary had and, and you know, pushing these white papers and, and getting good write-ups from smart economics writers about her plans. And that was once an effective way of, of campaigning and running a media strategy, but not anymore. Now there's a real uh, there's a real benefit to having sort of a, a simplified strategy that, that pushes points that will ride uh, a, a sort of a media wave, not necessarily on how great the idea is or what a fantastic policy is, but maybe the controversial nature of it. You know, Trump's Muslim ban, um, as Brian Fallon, Hillary's press secretary, put it, it, it didn't allow anyone to go to the right of him, um, any Republicans. No one could go further than that. So Trump would sort of take these natural ideas floating out there in the political discourse and take them to their natural extension, um, which which on its own dominates media coverage. Uh, and whether it's good or bad, it keeps him in the headlines. And it was easy to know what Donald Trump's message was. It was build a wall uh, and stop having unfair trade deals. It was simple. It was digestible. A lot of people said they don't know what Hillary stands for. I don't, I don't think that was really fair. She had plenty of policy proposals out there. But that's not the kind of coverage that uh, really breaks through anymore. So, Matthew Nussbaum, um, things are going to get worse before they get better. There's a pretty good chance that Sinclair will be uh, acquiring a whole bunch of Tribune stations while the approvals go through. Uh, they may have to offload some of those to fall under certain limits. Um, but on the other hand, try to end looking at hopeful horizons. Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of this legacy media that's still in pray, place and also a lot of na- digital native media uh, that's also um, in place and, and able to, to do certain things. And so I guess the question becomes, you know, I mean, there still are local TV stations and local newspapers and, you know, I, they just they don't seem to be as relevant as they maybe could be. Um, so had, did any of the people that you talked to have interesting ideas about what to do? Well, I think it's still sort of a pessimistic outlook. Uh, I think people are still sort of coming to terms with what this new landscape looks like. Um, and I sensed a lot of pessimism about that. That said, I think we're already sort of seeing a, a turning of the tide in the wake of the 2016 election and, and all this talk of um, interference in the election and, and the way fake stories were able to go viral um, and, and the way Facebook and Twitter were sort of weaponized to advance falsehoods. And I think we are seeing a greater appreciation for uh you know, institutional media. And I don't know what form that's going to take financially and how these local outlets are going to figure it out. Uh, That's a question for the business folks. But there's always going to be an appetite for fact-based, nonpartisan journalism, uh, especially on the local level. That's a need that has to be filled. And I think its absence is starting to be felt places, and that could be what it takes for it to come back. You know, I'll just mention one other thing, and I may be bringing it up again in the final segment with callers. But so Matthew Ingram, who does a lot of really interesting writing, particularly in Columbia Journalism Review about these kinds of topics. One thing that he keeps coming back to is the notion of comments, comment sections. Now, we know what happened to comment sections, which is a lot of them got broken by trolls. But comment sections in terms of engaging readers, particularly in a kind of on a kind of local base basis, you know, people who all kind of know each other, know the same problems, uh, 
maybe have sort of a, a, an ease with discussing things with one another. I mean, comment sections, I think, could engage and, and be a sort of crowdsourced, almost Wikipedia-style vetting of information if they're run properly. The problem is, that for the most part, they're not run properly, and a lot of people have just ditched them. NPR ditched them, and now the station that I'm on has ditched it, uh, ditched comment sections on, on its media site. But I, I do, I think Ingram's right about this. This is one of the ways, you got to find a way to do it so it's not a crap fest. But if you can do that, it, it might be one of the reviving mechanisms. Like so many things, though, to get that level of quality uh, costs a good deal of money. I think the New York Times has a really strong comment section, but that's because they can afford to have people who vet the comments. And obviously, they're not vetting uh, what kind of opinions get out there, but they're vetting uh, whether people are being nasty, uh, attacks, stuff like that. And when you can have that, you can get a really productive, uh, thoughtful comment section. But as you've mentioned, it's really easy for those things to be hijacked by trolls and sort of scare everyone who wants to make a thoughtful point away from it. All right. We're going to have to stop there. But uh, yes, absolutely. You have to read this piece if you haven't already in Politico. Um, I, I really, at least for things that I'm interested in, it's the piece of the weekend. It is the conversation uh, that I am having right now or that I've been having with Matthew Nussbaum uh, from uh uh, from Politico, and um, I've already lost the name again of your collaborator. You should give him one more shout out, Matthew. Uh, more than happy to do it. Uh, Sean Musgrave, who did a lot of the data crunching on here, deserves a ton of credit, and thank you so much for having me on. I knew it was a Musgrave, but I kept thinking story. That's the astronaut. All right, so thanks very much for doing that, and we will take a little break. We'll come back. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is, is headed to Washington tomorrow. Um, there's still a lot of problems at Facebook, and they're not confined to Facebook either. We'll talk to one of our favorite tech reporters about that. All right. So as I said before, Mark Zuckerberg is celebratedly uh, headed to Washington, D.C., according to The New York Times. Uh, he's getting a makeover <laughs> before he does it. Um, there are many questions that face all of us right now. There's a sense that Facebook is malfunctioning, but we may not even know exactly how it's malfunctioning. I think most people's apprehension of the different ways in which uh, uh, Facebook made itself available uh, to uh, people with bad intent in their hearts uh, is still not fully comprehended. Um, so here's uh, a guest who does specialize in thinking about things like that. That's Willow Ramis. Uh, he's been on our show many times before, senior tech reporter for Slate. He's been writing things like Ken Facebook fix itself before the midterms and speed kills from Facebook to Uber to Tesla. Silicon Valley's obsession with rapid growth is coming back to haunt it and us. So, Will, uh, welcome back to our conversations. Thanks for having me, Colin. So um, Facebook, uh, even as uh, these congressional hearings draw near, is putting out all kinds of plans uh, about what it's going to do about the problem. Except there's not just one problem. There's the problem with ads that were not from reliable sources, maybe not even from completely what would ordinarily in a conventional setting be legal sources. But there's also all kinds of people uh, pretending to be people that they weren't on Facebook and starting groups like blacktivism. 
uh, that weren't groups that appear what they were, were what they appeared to be. There was just a lot of really bad information uh, on Facebook. Does Facebook have a comprehensive plan to deal with this? Yeah, they they have a plan that's starting to look somewhat comprehensive. It's actually been really hard to keep up with for the past two weeks. Right. Facebook has been rolling out one press release after another after another, so much so that, that my colleagues and I who are trying to cover this have this hypothesis that they're trying to flood the zone to some extent. I mean, they're trying to put out so much information and do so many interviews and, and roll out so many tweaks and changes that nobody can really keep up with exactly what, what they're doing and, and what's going on. And, and I think they're hoping that people will just kind of Say, ah, you know what? Facebook's doing a lot of stuff. Uh, let's leave them alone. They're, they got a handle on this. Right. So, I mean, you could kind of divide um, remedies into a few different groups. Stuff the government could do in a, in a regulatory fever towards Facebook. And it's not, we should say at some point, it's not just Facebook. There's lots of other digital entities that kind of play into this problem. Stuff the government could do, stuff the entities themselves could do before the government does it to them, and then sort of a whole bunch of other kinds of solutions, including there's even a notion maybe building a PBS version of Facebook so that Facebook wouldn't be the only game in town and uh, and there'd be a non-commercial, I mean, kind of much more visionary stuff. But maybe talk about that first dichotomy. It's either Facebook's either going to fix itself or Amy Klobuchar and uh, a lot of other people are going to step in and try to fix Facebook for Facebook. Right. Well, you mentioned Amy Klobuchar, who's uh, a congresswoman um, from uh, Minnesota, who's backing the Honest Ads bill. And that's the probably the one piece of concrete legislation that exists in Congress today that would affect these com- companies and address these kinds of issues. The Honest Ads Act is actually, you know, the tech companies, they don't have much of a problem with it, honestly. I mean, to the extent that big tech companies are not supporting it, it mostly is just because they don't think it will pass and they don't want to throw their weight behind a bill that looks unlikely to pass for reasons of, of partisan politics in D.C. Um, but they actually, that's not the kind of regulation that scares them. They are, uh, they're okay with disclosure who's buying ads. And Facebook, in fact, along with Twitter, have rolled out in advance of any such legislation their own fixes to uh, increase ad transparency so that, for instance, on Facebook, there were all these ads in the 2016 election that were placed uh, by pages on Facebook, but they weren't posted to those pages. They were only placed to the specific audience that they were targeted at. And that meant that in in essence, you could do these really, you know, these racist or or bigoted or or offensive or fear mongering ads. And only the people who you wanted to see them would see them. The public, the rest of the public, the media would have no way of knowing you're even placing them. It was just a new form of unaccountable political advertising. Facebook has moved to close that loophole. So has Twitter. They're okay doing that kind of stuff. What they fear is any kind of more structural shift uh, in terms of uh, the privacy regime. Um, they're having to, in in the EU, the passage of the GDPR, that's the, mm-hmm. the general data pro- protection regulation, has forced social media companies to go to all kinds of new lengths to let people, for instance, opt out of all the data collection rather than rather than being in by, sorry, to opt, they have to opt in now rather than being in by default. Uh, that kind of stuff is a bigger deal for these companies, although of course they're complying in the EU. It's fair to ask to what extent they're going to comply with those in the United States. And then the big elephant in the room when uh, these big tech companies are in Washington is antitrust. That's the thing that really scares them. If you say, or write anything about Facebook or Google or Amazon that suggests they might be a monopoly, uh, as a reporter, you're going to hear immediately from
from those companies PR operations saying, whoa, 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 no, please, you know, you can't say that. It's like you can say anything, but don't call us a monopoly because being broken up or being, uh, you know, being uh, treated more aggressively in terms of antitrust regulation is the, the existential threat to their company. Right. I would assume that they uh, feel, as they do about the M word, pretty much the same about the U word, the U word being utility. Uh, same kind of thing. You know, we can regulate utilities um, because people, the nature of utilities, people don't have a lot of choice about which thing that they deal with. And Facebook obviously is so huge. Uh, you can kind of make that argument. You know, a couple of things, Will. One of them is, as you said, Facebook's putting out a lot of stories about stuff that they're going to do. And I think attitudinally, they put out a lot of stories, too. Um, I'm teaching a course that involves some of the stuff this year. One of my students is from Kenya, and she noted this week that what they seem to do is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, I think he still believes pretty sincerely in the utopian nature of Facebook, that if its communicative model just really works and people really communicate with one another sincerely and have really good dialogues and send each other really nice pictures and, and share their lives together, that, that Facebook is really going to be a force for good and not hijacked all the time by malfeasors. Um, and, and he kind of ignores the degree to which Facebook is just this kind of utterly monetized milk for every advertising possibility uh, that could be inside entity. The people who understand that are people like Sheryl Sandberg. And so, you know, the, the, they send Zuckerberg out to, there to be the face, the idealistic face of a not that idealistic organization. Uh, I'll let you react to that. I, I think Mark Zuckerberg knows what he's doing. I don't think he has, you know, any illusions or at least certainly isn't justified in having any illusions about the fact that Facebook is a massive business. Uh, Wired's Fred Vogelstein wrote a piece recently where he recalled that Facebook used to end every Friday all-hands meeting. These are the, the company meetings where everybody comes together, including Zuckerberg and Sandberg. They used to end it by yelling the word domination. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't I don't buy the idea that Mark Zuckerberg is is this naive who's uh, who really believes that he's saving the world by connecting people. I I mean I, of course there's always motivated reasoning. In Involved here, right? I mean, if you're the person sitting in Mark Zuckerberg's seat, you're running this huge company. You're going to be looking at all the all the great things that your users are doing with Facebook, and no doubt, Facebook serves a lot of positive purposes in the world. That's one of the dilemmas now that we have in countries uh, where Facebook grew so fast and got so big that it actually has become sort of the de facto internet. So Myanmar is an example of this. Uh, it's a company. Uh, a country where there's a uh, you know where there are concerns of ethnic cleansing and genocide, and Facebook is really the primary means of online interaction. If you talk to to experts in Myanmar, and uh, my colleague April Glazer wrote a good piece on this for Slate. We talked to them about, hey, look, you've been accused by the United Nations of uh, Facebook's tools fueling this genocide, of, of uh, you know people spreading propaganda to build up hate against the Rohingya people and to uh, help help turn the society against itself. And you know, what are you going to do about that? You know, how do you how do you think about your dominant role in a country like that where you don't even have offices? And they said, well, yeah, we, we lose sleep over this, but but the reality is they can't pull out of there because it's not just that hate mongers are using Facebook in Myanmar to spread fake stories about the Rohingya. It's also that activists who are trying to protect people use Facebook to organize. Uh, people run their businesses on Facebook. It's an e-commerce hub. People use it to get out uh, real news and authentic information. So the issue, I think a lot of the issues that Facebook is having now flow from that 
uh, domination. They flow from the fact that Facebook has become in some ways a monopoly on online information in countries around the world, not even more so than the United States, actually. I, I think another possible problem is that it's understaffed. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, there's just no way to, to fully state how gigantic Facebook is at this point. Clay Shirky was recently making the point that if everybody in the U.S. shut down their Facebook accounts, that would be a 10 percent reduction in their overall size. Uh, they're, they're big. And as you're saying, you know, in these other countries, yes, they can play a really great role for um, insurgents and dissidents. But, yeah, I mean, Sri Lanka, you know, they eventually blocked Facebook because the anti-Muslim, the violent toward Muslims movement was using uh, Facebook. And it's happened in a lot of countries where government officials have gone to Facebook and said, please help us control this problem. There are people fomenting violence against minorities in our country. And it almost seems like they just don't really have the bandwidth to do that, which is kind of an ironic thing to say because they are bandwidth, right? I just feel like for a $10 billion profit company, their staff maybe isn't big enough to do all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, it's, it raises an interesting question because if Facebook were just a tool that anybody could use to post messages or to, you know, a company could use to reach their uh, customers or media could use to reach their audience, if it were just a neutral platform, Facebook has plenty of people. I mean, it runs the technology just fine. The, the, the service itself technically works quite well. If you start to think of Facebook that has as a company that has responsibility for what people are posting and for how people are using it, then all of a sudden that is a much, much harder proposition. That is not stuff that we have the artificial intelligence capability to automate these days. You know, an, an AI engine can help you target an ad to people if your if your goal is to try to reach a certain demographic or people with certain and uh, certain certain interests or uh, or characteristics but AI cannot distinguish hate speech from legitimate political speech for instance for that you need humans and not just humans but humans who are sensitive to the cultural and political context of where that speech is taking place so faith Facebook is that kind of company, the kind that's responsible for what people do with it, then it's absolutely understaffed. I mean, it has, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000, 30,000, yeah. maybe more than that full-time employees. It has a bunch of hiring thousands more, maybe tens of thousands more contractors to try to moderate speech. But I don't know that it could ever be big enough to, to take the kind of responsibility that we should demand probably of an online information source that is so powerful and so influential in the world. You know, Will, as Facebook heads into these uh, hearings, um, uh, it would be nice if the ground wasn't shifting under Facebook's feet, if they were starting from, you know, a solid level base in their conversations with potential regulators and law passers that they don't want to ever have to deal with. But, you know, really, you just it just seems like in addition to all of these statements about what they're going to do, it's like every day there's a new crisis. You had uh, the revelation last week that Facebook executives can retract messages from inboxes in a way that um, ordinarily ordinary mortals can't do. It appears that towards the end of last week and the beginning of the weekend, they had a data breach in Europe. And Europe is a bad place to have a data breach because they take privacy more seriously than we do here in the USA. Today, I'm reading about uh, a data analytics company called CubeU uh, that was doing essentially the same thing with personality questionnaires that, that Cambridge Analytica was doing. And the only way Facebook found out about it was a report by CNBC. I mean, it, it seems as though as they head into this particular set of conversations, they don't really have their house in order kind of on their own back end. 
No, their house was on fire, in fact. Um, but that's that's from a public relations perspective. That's from the perspective of uh, trying to do all the things that we want and expect them to do. From a business perspective, they're doing great. You know, the, there was this delete Facebook campaign in the backlash to the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, mostly we saw it in Western markets where, as you pointed out, a minority of Facebook users reside. That has had, Facebook acknowledges, basically no meaningful impact on its business. So what we're talking about here for Facebook is not a business crisis, but it's a PR crisis. And the concern for Facebook is that if the PR crisis grows to a certain proportion, it becomes a business crisis. There are a couple ways that could happen. One that we touched on earlier is uh, antitrust action of some sort. That's a, that would certainly be a business crisis. Another might be that if employees and, and prospective employees stop viewing Facebook as a place that is serving a positive mission in the world, that's going to inhibit their ability to attract top engineering talent. And if you look at what makes the best Silicon Valley companies so successful, what gives them their competitive edge, they will tell you it is our ability to attract top engineers and top and recruit top employees. If Facebook loses that, if it becomes uh, like Microsoft was in the 2000s, as opposed to how Microsoft was in the 90s, then it, you know, it's it's no longer the fast moving dynamic company that it was. And, and that's a threat to their business long term as well. All right, Will Aramis, as usual, lots of interesting stuff from you, and it's going to be a very interesting week as well. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Colin. All right, so we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. This final segment is you. I don't. We deliberately did not book a guest so that you could talk about stuff that you want to talk about. And, and I mean, I think the two conversations we've had so far about A, the legacy media environment, and B, the digital media environment should give you lots of fodder. I'll suggest some topics when we come back, but you may want to just call right now. We're going to have a very short break here, so if you want to call 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266, I'm all ears. So first, uh, because Kyan Wolf is not around at the moment, uh, let me tell you who worked on today's show. Uh, Betsy Kaplan produced today's show. That means that she lined up all the guests and she dealt with me, which was by far, and it always is, the harder of those two tasks. And I kept saying, ah, we don't need guests. <laughs> I'll just talk to the callers. So I want to remind you of that, too. Uh, it's up to you right now. Don't prove me wrong. Uh, 860-275-7266. That's the number you're going to call. 860-275-7266. Jonathan McNichol is on the board also because uh, Kyle Wolf is not here. Uh, Josh Nalea is uh, floating in a ghostly way around uh, the studio helping Julius Brown with the phones. Julius is our uh, intern. Uh, we're expecting you guys to call up and flood the lines with your comments uh, and your thoughts. Uh, who else do I need to th I have to say who played uh, the part of Bill Curry. Uh, that was Steve Wozniak. And uh, so tomorrow, okay, tomorrow, this is kind of interesting. We went to uh, Watkinson last week to have a conversation about food, which I realized there actually is another show on this station where they have a conversation about food. And one of the people from that show actually joined me in, in Watkin at Watkinson. But the conversation is a little bit different. The, the, the conversation is sort of how to eat sanely. 
So how to eat in such a way that uh, you um, eat good food, uh, that you don't eat unhealthy food, but you still have delicious food, uh, that you avoid spending ridiculous amounts of money on food that's not measurably better than food that would cost less. Um, there's quite a bit uh, uh, in this conversation about what's scientifically true about certain kinds of food and what is not, despite people's fervent belief in that, and also about how the way that we eat affects other people, uh, both the people who farm the food, uh, maybe some of the people who don't get the kind of food that we get. So it's a good, far-ranging uh, conversation. It's tomorrow's show. Uh, tune in for that. All right. So nobody's calling up right now, but that's fine because that means that I, I can just talk the whole time. Uh, but that's that's suboptimal. I, I realize probably people would prefer that something else happened. Let me go back to the beginning of the show because I really have been thinking a lot about this question. Like what's what's going on with local news? Um, and I think local news kind of gets short shrift sometimes, particularly after a, a presidential cam- campaign like 2016, where it just seemed like all the important stuff was happening or feeling to happen on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and the networks and the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is, um, local news, including what you're listening to right now, I mean, uh, we feel as though our program sometimes has a much further reach than local news, but we also consider it to be very much part of the local news ecosystem. We try to give you a lot of news uh, about um, about your immediate surroundings. And certainly here at this station, our goal is to give you a tremendous amount of information. I mean, part of my job is to co-host The Wheelhouse on uh, Wednesdays, which is entirely about the political climate and governmental climate here in Connecticut. But having that really robust biome, you know, that sort of diverse set of news and media and political journalism and journalism in general, microbial presences uh, in in your local uh, news ecosystem is really, really important. And if it's not done well, if it's done cynically, uh, if it's um, if it's done inattentively, if corners are cut, I think the damage is worse than we had then we, I think we've become kind of inured to that question. I mean, I think we sort of know that there are things going on at the national level that should bother us. It should bother us that ultimately some of the national TV, uh, both cable and broadcast TV networks, came to see 2016 as a cash cow and maybe lose a little bit uh, of sight uh, of some of the other other things at stake there. I mean, we, I think at, at some conscious level we know that, but I don't think we necessarily know everything that's going on at the local level. And and some bad things are going on, but also some good things are going on. There's good reporting being done. There's There are still good and robust media institutions. But I'm really interested in getting your feedback about that, too. Whether we're talking about local television, local radio, local newspapers, or some of the uh, what we call digital natives. That digital natives, by the way, a term I throw around without explaining, is uh, those are, as a you might divine, those are news uh, or media entities that were born on the digital landscape. In other words, you know, the New York Times has a digital, a large digital imprint or footprint these days, um, but it didn't start that way. But for example, CT News Junkie or the Connecticut Mirror, things like that, uh, the New Haven Independent, those are digital natives. These are journalism enterprises here in Connecticut that exist, uh, that were born on the internet and live pretty much exclusively there. Um, So I don't know. I just want to hear uh, a little bit from you about all that. Um, I'm also, I've gotten more and more interested in comment sections too. I feel like 
we gave up on comment sections. We gave them up on them here. Right now, they are in a state of suspension at the Hartford Current. Um, a, a lot of other news organizations uh, have either gotten rid of them or wondered what to do about them. And I think they're like really important forums, too. If they're handled the right way, we can learn so much about each other and little bits and pieces of the news. Uh, I feel like we need more. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, here's a call from Diane in Colchester. Hi, Diane. You're on the air. Hi, Diane. You might, when you finally hear me, need to turn down your radio. Hey, Diane, can you hear me? Or maybe you're just not there. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to put her on hold just in case. Uh, if when you do call up, you need to turn down your radio because otherwise you won't hear me saying your name until many seconds after I've actually said it. Uh, here's Rob in Guilford. Hi, Rob. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Hey, I had a question. Since everyone is discussing Facebook and their data scraping and data breaches, how come no one has been bringing up the data breaches of Equifax, which to me are so much more critical because of the information that they have collected on us and how they don't have any sort of laws against giving that, you know, data to them? Um, first of all, um First of all, you're right that that's a very significant data breach. I mean, to me, it sort of falls into a different category, though, right? Equifax's job is understood to be different. They didn't do it the right way. Um, and I think there's been, you know, quite a bit of news coverage of it. To me, it's a little different. I, I, but let me say this. Let me get back on a, onto a different ground with you and say, yes, I think we fetishize uh, and obsess about Facebook. But I think one of the reasons that we do that, Facebook, Twitter, Google, they have the ability to uh, affect our apprehension of the news and of reality, whereas Equifax essentially compromised financial data, uh, which is that, that's no small potatoes. It's a real serious problem for a whole bunch of people and created a lot of vulnerabilities that shouldn't have exist. But it's not the reality distortion problem that we're talking about with some of these other entities. Does that make sense? Yeah, that actually makes perfect sense because Facebook does act as an environment that you know, can control our narrative on certain subjects, and that has been shown to be true. So that is a great answer. Thank you, Colin. All right, thanks. Um, well, that's, a, that's why they pay me the big bucks here is to have those great answers. All right, so let's uh, go. We're going to see if we can find Diane again. She's in Colchester. We know that anyway. Hi, Diane. Are you, are you there now? I am there, Colin. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Um, something on Facebook, well, it was a meme this morning, um, that struck me as odd was um, the blooper that Fox News put on this Sunday uh, saying that they were the least, um, well, people don't trust them. They trust them the least of the cable news networks. It, they obviously weren't supposed to put it on, but there it was on the screen. Why is it so popular Fox News, especially in the morning, but yet people trust them the least? It's, well, it's a good question, but I mean, I think the answer, I'll have to be a journalism professor here uh, and say that, um, that in order to be popular um, in this environment, it's, popular is a very small number. And so let me give you sort of a sense of scale. So um, evening 
cable news programs, whether they're on Fox or MSNBC or CNN. I'm talking about Rachel Maddow and Anderson Cooper and Sean Hannity and that kind of stuff. Their audiences are typically three to four million people, be four million people on a really good night. But more typically somewhere in the threes, just by by comparison to that, I mean, even like meet the press, you know, on Sunday mornings where you wouldn't really think you could garner a very large audience compared to what you can do, uh, you know, in, in a primetime evening cable slot. Um, Meet the Press, I think, has a slightly larger audience than any of those shows. Um, and certainly the evening news, which feels like a dinosaur, right? I'm talking about the three network evening newses. Um, you know, that feels like a dinosaur that nobody watches anymore. But the truth is they have sort of 8 to 10 million. The, the successful ones like NBC have... Um, uh, 8 to 10 million people watching, which is considerably more than are, are watching Fox News or, or anything else on cable. So, I mean, part of the answer is that to to be to have a huge footprint in the cable news universe, you don't have to have that many viewers. I mean, really, when you think about it, 3 million I mean, what, 18 million people watched the first episode of Roseanne. So 3 million is not that many or 3.5 million or whatever they're getting. Um, so, you know, you don't need to get a lot of people to trust you. You need to get 3.5 million people to trust you. Uh, and I think that's probably the answer. And those 3.5 million people in the case of Fox also don't feel like they have any place else to go. I mean, they don't trust any of the things that I just mentioned, MSNBC or CNN or NBC or ABC. They don't trust any of that stuff. So that's also allowed them. I mean, in a way, Fox has kind of cornered the market for a certain kind of audience. I don't know. Do I? I guess I don't. Do I? I don't. I don't dare take another phone call. I'm sorry. I gave too long an answer there. Um, all right. So. <laughs> Um, So anyway, we did a call segment and I didn't take as many calls because I talked too much. But thank you to Jim and Patrick. I'm really sorry uh, I didn't get to your calls. If you want to email me at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org, I will get that email. I will attempt to answer that email. And we want to do more of this, too. I mean, speaking of comment sections, this is sort of our audio version of a comment section, and we'd love to hear a lot from you. Uh, If you didn't ask me such hard questions, I probably could have gotten more comments on the air. Uh, All right. Thanks to everybody who helped out. Um, Listen to this food conversation tomorrow. It's going to be, I think, really interesting. Uh, And thanks for listening today. I hope you thought this was really interesting. (laughs) 